What's up, everyone? You're listening to the Anthro Alert podcast, which is the recording of our live show, Anthro Alert. You can now listen at your leisure and at your convenience. If you're new here on Anthro Alert, this is where Renee and I, your hosts, and sometimes our guests, analyze, break down, and discuss different topics each week anthropologically. Enjoy. Welcome to Anthro Alert on Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus and streaming worldwide, live and on the scene at TuneIn.com and on the TuneIn app. Um, of course, you know, learn more at BullsRadio.org, learn more about our show at AnthroAlert.com. Um, so this show is about anthropology and why it matters. Each week, we'll discuss how anthropology is relevant and over time, we'll feature various guests from the Department of Anthropology to discuss their research and have them weigh in on everyday topics or current events. We believe this is a good opportunity for us anthropologists to better connect with the USF community and raise awareness of the value of an anthropological perspective. Uh, we like to preface our shows with the with the, the statements. Um, we like to preface our shows with a disclaimer that the statements we make and the opinions we express on AnthroAlert are our own and may not necessarily be representative of anthropology as a discipline, USF Anthropology Department, USF, or student government. Um, and I think we are having a bit of a technical um, thing, so we're, we're actually going to cut for music real quick, and we'll see if we can figure this out, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to AnthroAlert. Uh, it isn't a, It isn't a our regular show if we don't have something go wrong and fortunately today it went off it went wrong right away so uh looks like uh, clear sailing from here i am a co-host my name is renee and i'm spencer and we actually have a full house today we have uh, someone else helping on the show and um alex again yeah so thanks for having us uh and so our guest today is actually dr elizabeth miller hi thanks and for coming on yeah Thank you for having me. It's great to be here today on a beautiful, warm Tampa day. Too warm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's getting warm real fast. I know, I like it. I don't know, man. I just the ninety. Once it starts getting ninety, I just get uncomfortable. Same. It, yeah. It reminds me of um, of not being cold, and I enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of being sticky because it's very humid here. <laughs> I don't enjoy yeah. that. Yeah, as a as a commuter, so I walk to campus. Like my sh- my my shirts are just destroyed by the time I get here. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's as someone who would like to walk commute and does not because of the heat. Yeah. I'm with you. The struggles. I, f- I feel like we need like more more advanced uh, clothing technology that wicks away the moisture. <laughs> if only if only that existed. <laughs> uh, all right. So on today's show, um, Dr. Miller is going to be talking to us a little bit about uh, the research that. The research that she has done recently in regards to um, breastfeeding and biomedical research and healthcare and and, um, and anthropology's role in that setting, and uh, so yeah, let's just like kind of let's just dive right into it and let's let's find out what's what's the primary focus of your research. Oh, I almost have too many primary foci of my research. I hope <laughs> I, I use the plural correctly there. Um, but I, I think today I wanted to focus on, on a couple of little pieces that are sort of cl- centered around actually getting populations out of clinical settings. Um, so the, the primary area my research has, has 
sort of focused on is breastfeeding and the mother-infant dyad. Um, and a lot of my research looks at things like immune function and um, more recently the microbiome and how infants grow and develop. Um, but uh, once I started moving some of my um, research areas from... Uh-oh. No, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> Thought I might have seen another technical difficulty there. Um, <laughs> I, it, there, um, I, I moved it away from sort of a field setting in Kenya to the U.S. I started intersecting more with sort of clinical settings mm-hmm. um, and started doing some anthropology there. So I wanted to talk a little bit about my, my research as a biological anthropologist, um, as, as someone whose research has didn't start out applied, but it's becoming increasingly more applied, and how I intersected with sort of the biomedical um, community and integrated them as collaborators. Mm. And um, so what is, you know, your, your collaborations with, with biomedical researchers and healthcare providers in that, in that setting, what do you feel like your role as an anthropologist really is? <laughs> I, I, some of it is um, support, so, and, and, um, you know, top-level collaboration. You know, we come up with research questions together. Um, we we talk about methods together. Um, but I also feel a little bit of my role is to be um, um, stir the pot a little bit. Mm. Um, it, it, since anthropology um, has a pretty big aspect of critique to it in a way that um, is not usually seen in some of the bi- biomedical sciences, they just critique in a different way. Um, I, I'm able to sit back and say. Well, you know, you take this system for granted, um, but maybe we should look at it and see if that's really the correct s- system. Or mm. how do people interact with this system, even though you, you've put it forth as sort of the best way um, for treating or helping mothers and infants? Is this really um, going to be the way that, that creates the most, you know, the best outcomes? How is this perspective and, and critique aspect of, of your role, how is this perceived by your other... I guess is it is it well received or does it do you get pushback or right I think that um I've also chosen my collaborators very carefully oh, okay. they're also people that are open to talking to an anthropologist right sure. so um I have a couple of close collaborators in nursing and another one who's um maternal fetal medicine which is high risk obstetrics mm-hmm. um but they're they're very open minded people um they like anthropology and anthropologists you know for mm-hmm. example one of them um is a graduate of USF um she got her PhD here in nursing and she had an anthropologist on her dissertation committee mm-hmm. um another took significant anthropology classes as an undergraduate mm-hmm. um so they're they're already in the mindset that it's right. kind of okay sure you know to tolerate me okay yeah so <laughs> i mean i guess if they're already inviting you into yeah. that setting right yeah. they're already kind of open to i guess to that perspective yes or okay. some of them are more junior than me so putting up with me <laughs> uh, <laughs> i'm joking they're not it's not like that <laughs> <laughs> sure um Okay. I think we're going to um, we're going to take one more break, and then when we come back, we're going to uh, dive into some of the specific projects that you've worked with in, Great. in uh, the clinical setting. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Anthro Alert here on Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus and streaming worldwide at TuneIn.com and on the TuneIn app. Uh, check us out on BullsRadio.org, AnthroAlert.com, Twitter, Facebook, everywhere. In those places specifically, all the major culprits. Yeah. Uh, so so far, we've been kind of talking with Dr. Miller a little bit about the you know focus of the research and, or the the multiple foci of the research, mm. um, and 
And, uh, yeah, so we're just going to continue that. Right. So we're going to dive into, like, some specific projects that you worked on. Great. Um, and so we wanted to start with the – there was one project in particular you said you worked with uh, – what you referred to as the baby friendly hospital accreditation uh, yes uh, so can you first I guess define what that means and then talk about the project yes I absolutely can um, baby friendly hospital international BFHI um, is a is a um, I, I guess would I call it accreditation or certifi- certification I, I don't know it's a, it's an international organization that um, that make sure that hospitals follow particular clinical steps um, to supporting breastfeeding in the hospital, um, specifically within the hospital. Um, but there's a couple of steps that also relate to um, prenatal education and postnatal education. What, what are those steps? I don't know if I could tell you all 10, but but they are called the 10 steps to successful breastfeeding. Um, and some of them include things like, um, uh, making sure that there are, are certain policies and that everyone is following, um, mm. adequate training for staff. Um, and then there are steps that, that, um, that patients have to be engaged with, um, such as making sure they have prenatal education about breastfeeding and um, infant feeding options, um, behaviors that they are supposed to follow um, post-birth, like making sure that um, babies and infants come, become, come skin to skin with each other relatively quickly mm-hmm. um, a- after birth. Uh, sorry, babies and their mothers um, are skin to skin pretty quickly after birth. Mm-hmm. Um, things like trying to initiate breastfeeding a certain amount of time after birth, um, providing support for mothers you know are going to need the support. Um, for example, maybe their, their um, infant is born um, small or, mm-hmm. you know, may need to be checked out by the NICU. So accommodating those types of clinical situations, um, not offering pacifiers, um, making sure that um, there is no formula given out routinely as a sample. Um, it can mm-hmm. be on the floor, but it has to be only dispensed by prescription. Um, that's mm-hmm. actually one of the sticking points where hospitals usually don't, um, d- they decide they don't want to do that because uh, formula companies will all, often give them their clinical formula for free as long as they're allowed to um, distribute samples to everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the hospital itself has to be prepared to take on the cost of formula after that. So, so it's kind of like it's kind of like putting like uh, Coca or um, uh, I don't want to use brand names, uh, so, soda <laughs> vending machines in, in you know schools, right? Yes. Because it's like, oh, we were promoting healthy lifestyle. Yes. Uh, w- but with soda. Yes. But <laughs> yes. but really yes. you know just think about it. So it's it's yes. similar that way. Yes, yeah. exactly. And they're often packaged these formula samples are often packaged in like going home bags and 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 you know things that that make um there are some things in there that are very useful and then there's also formula which some people may want to use, some people may not have planned on using but end up using because it's available to them. So mm-hmm. um one of the 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 um things that is very important for this baby um this bfhi designation is that um you you don't you don't allow those samples to be um given out routinely again you can have formula on the floor for clinical reasons there are some clinical reasons why you might need it but um mm-hmm. you you can't you can't actually have it um so so t- the the hospital we studied it's a large one here um um in the community um, that works with usf uh, they were undergoing this this um these clinical changes Oh, and and then I guess one of the last steps too is is their postnatal breastfeeding support because mm-hmm. oftentimes um, there's really a critical window after birth um, where things get awfully difficult um, and and it it, it 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 sometimes without support mothers feel at the end of their rope um, and they discontinue breastfeeding for reasons other than they really wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is step ten. Um, so so 
the hospital is undergoing these clinical changes, and we decided to pull um, some of the numbers. So we, we myself, um, Yvonne Hernandez, who's faculty um, in the College of Nursing, Adatola Louis-Jacques, who's faculty um, now at the, at the time she was a, a fellow, um, she's faculty now in obstetrics and gynecology. Um, we decided to pull some of the numbers on breastfeeding in- initiation at the hospital um, and breastfeeding at discharge at the hospital. So the hospital actually does keep statistics on this for you know quality purposes. And we decided to look at, at the changes that happened prior to the clinical changes um, and then while they were in the middle of making these clinical changes. And we actually noted some, some major improvements for the hospital overall. Um, they increased their initiation drastically, and um, the, the number of infants exclusively breastfeeding at discharge was also increased very drastically, which we thought, well, that's great. But we decided to break it down more because there are some well-known disparities in breastfeeding in the United States. Um, In particular, African-American women breastfeed at lower rates um, than than, um, other racial and ethnic groups um, in the United States. So we decided to break it down by that, um, as well as look at specific clinics. So there's a particular low-income clinic that serves um, high-risk women that feeds into this hospital. So we decided to look at that site particularly and break it down by racial and ethnic groups. And we found that at that site, breastfeeding rates were lower overall. And then by ethnic groups, um, African-American women were the the lowest of all, um, um, with white women being intermediate and and Hispanic-identified women being the highest. And that matches the trend across the country, right? Yes, absolutely. As, As Renee, I think, knows very well. In fact, having worked in an applied setting mm. that that followed breastfeeding, mm. um, so <laughs> so we we looked at those numbers and and um, immediately my collaborators um, wanted to design um, interventions and support systems f- for for this particular group, which I thought was very great. And I said, "Well, I'm I'm here too. I want to be involved." One of the things I think we should do as anthropologists, um, since I'm an anthropologist, um, is just talk to these women, you know, and ask them what their experiences are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that was sort of the, the little piece where, you know, they're thinking, you know, like, how can we do this quality improvement? And like, what are the interventions we can do? To and anyone, how can we do this? Yes, well, and then I said, I would like to talk to somebody, yeah. you know, just, just a thought. Um, so so we uh, we... They, we developed this very large thing with the with this qualitative let's talk to women piece is a small part of it like that was my piece, um, and we ended up not being able to go for that particular funding. But I I saw an opportunity with the office office of community engagement and partnerships here on campus for a faculty research grant a community engaged faculty research grant and I said well I'll take this little qualitative piece and I'll apply for this grant and we got it, mm-hmm. and then immediately I thought oh shoot. I'm trained as a biological anthropologist. My qualitative skills aren't so hot. Mm. They're okay, <laughs> but um, I need more help. So um, I enlisted a colleague of mine, Tara Dubell, who had expressed to me that she wanted um, more engagement with breastfeeding. Mm. You know, she had someone who she is someone who has experienced it and um, really wanted to, to dig into the research a little bit more. And I said, "Hey, I have the project for you." That's my advisor, actually. <laughs> oh, great! Yeah. Well, a friend, a friend <laughs> of the show, no doubt. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad she's, she's excellent. She Um, really is. Yeah. And, um, she's been really excellent on this project. It's been fantastic to work with her and, and we really needed her because I got this money and I'm like, well, (laughs) (laughs) I could get through the interviews because I like talking to people, but uh, once it gets to the analysis point, I need, I probably need some support and, you know, she was there. Um, 
So the four of us um, in, embarked on, you know, we, we talked to African-American women who had given birth at this hospital and had experienced prenatal education through the clinic as well. So we asked them what their experiences were um, in the process, their, their birth experience and their experience with infant feeding in the hospital. And then also, you know, what their what their daily lives were looking like after they got out. Um, and we found that... Um, we have several findings, and we're still writing up this research. Uh, mm-hmm. We have one paper that just came out in the American Journal of Human Lactation. Um, we found that at the site, they were really good at prenatal education. Women really appreciated hearing about breastfeeding from their providers at that clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, they had long relationships with these providers. They saw them over and over and over again. They trusted them. Some of them had seen them for earlier babies that they had had. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the information came from someone they knew, um, they were really um, – open to hearing it mm. and um and I, and some women changed their mind about what their plans were going to be mm. um when they got to the hospital their experiences were a little bit more mixed they were less open i think to hearing what the hospital staff had to say because it weren't the same people necessarily from the clinic to the hospital right. um so they 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 weren't they weren't as they they didn't seem to appreciate the steps that were in the hospital quite as much as they did with the prenatal education. Mm-hmm. And the last step, which is postnatal education, virtually nobody used anything. And at that time, that was the part the hospital still needed to work on. So what what are what's part of postnatal postnatal education? Well, it can be a bunch of things. I think um, at the very least you need um, a, an ability to refer to some kind of breastfeeding support group, mm-hmm. um, and they were doing that, but I don't think it was made very explicit to them what was available. Okay. Um, it, 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 since then, they have um, invited a, a, a free lactation support group that had. Um, various sort of groups around town. They invited them to set up shop, I believe, in the pediatrics clinic that's right next to the women's clinic. So when the mothers come and bring their infants in, um, that that resource is available. And I mm-hmm. think that was probably very helpful mm-hmm. to them. Otherwise, oh, ac- so did you have a question? Yeah, did you have a question? Oh, no, I was, I was going to ask on the postnatal. Like, when you yeah. say, oh, <laughs> what, does what does that mean? Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. and okay. um, I'm not someone who has breastfed myself, but I've talked to a lot of breastfeeding moms, and it's really that first two to four weeks where um, if there are issues, they're going to really start to show up. And imagine this if you're in a situation where, um, you know, you've got some support in the hospital. Maybe you, you got it to work out, and you're, you know, you're breastfeeding when you're discharged, and then you come home, and maybe... Um, you know, your milk hasn't fully come in because it doesn't come in for a few days after birth. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. you, you have colostrum, which is just a little tiny bit, and your mature milk comes in, you know, three to five to more days afterwards. Um, so you're not sure when that's going to come in. Or um, you don't know, um, you, or you're experiencing pain and you don't know where it's coming from. Um, so these are all sorts of things that, that you need extra support. And um, the medical community, I have to say, this is where I get anthropologists, I really critique. They've done a they historically did a great job of destroying breastfeeding knowledge yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> in the community. So there are mm-hmm. lots of communities where you cannot ask your mom or your aunt or your grandma for help because they didn't breastfeed either. It was almost systematic in the way that that was done. Yes. yes. Was there just a move at, at some point in time to go to formula only and there was a – like, can you explain what, what was that systematically? That yeah. Was, well, I, I actually can. This might be a little bit of a history lesson. We yeah. may go totally off the tangent of my research, but that's great because I like talking about it. We um, love tangents here on <laughs> So there was a um, – T- Tangents and tangerines. Tangents. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a segment for you guys. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, so there was a, a movement, I would say, at the turn of the 20th century toward, um, well, any sort of modernism. Um, mm. you, you might have heard in, in Foundations class about from, from Dr. Yelvington about Fordism. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. This idea that things need to be regulated, measured, um, mm. it, put under scientific control, mm. um, a, a, and, and doled out at specific intervals. Mm. Um, that happened to a lot of different systems, but one of them was infant feeding. And it, it was almost systematic. So with the rise of the... Um, sort of medical establishment mm-hmm. as doctors were starting to establish themselves one of the things they decided to take control over was birth and the feeding of infants and um, formula companies aided in this there were laws a long time ago that formula companies could not market directly to mothers but they could market to physicians mm-hmm. so around this time the 1910s 1920s um, there were the, the prodigious amounts of of writing from doctors to give formula to infants. And so, um, as you can imagine, the people that could access that, um, largely upper middle class, urban, white women, mm-hmm. um, were exposed to formula. Was and the, so that became the dominant way of feeding among um, that group. Is this a cynical economic thing, or was there a medical justification or misunderstanding at the time that formula was superior to breast milk? I think it's both. I think it's both. It, it, has, it was not formula was not subject to scientific testing, mm. um, right? So we it, it could be it, just rice water. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I mean, it, the scientific testing that it was that it underwent was um, they were just learning about vitamins too. Mm. So it's things like, well, can we add vitamins to this? Can you know? And then what will that be like? And so there's this idea, I think, that we can engineer something. We can really make that something, and that's science. Yeah. Yes, and that's science. Um, right. Rather than test it on the baby and see how the baby does, right. you know they didn't they didn't take that approach. Mm. Um, and then there was also economic issues. I think that came from several different places. Um, some were, were that there were um, agricultural, um, oh gosh, what is the term? Subsidies being put out toward different types of f- farming, and one of them actually was dairy. Mm-hmm. production. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a lot of excess milk that was that was being brought into cities and they had to figure out something to do with it. Mm-hmm. So giving it to kids was one of the things that they did. That's actually how milk became a child food. Mm-hmm. Um, is this excess milk production they had to figure Does out it what just to make do with strong it. bones. <laughs> <laughs> nobody has nobody has really totally tested that either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're starting to now. Yeah. Um, but it it's uh, that's why we traditionally think of it as a ch- child's food is they had to do well, something with that milk. Well not only that, I mean yeah. I think uh, correct me if I'm wrong but um I mean m- more a, a greater proportion of children are or lact- lactase persistent? Well, that's true, too. That's mm-hmm. true, too. Lactase persistence shuts off at some point um, when you're at some point during your childhood. Okay. Probably we don't know what the variation is in that, but but you, you can digest lactose as a baby um, unless something is very wrong um, because you have to because mm-hmm. you're a milk drinker. You're a mm-hmm. mammal, mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so you better be able to drink milk or else. Yeah. 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 Um, and then lactase persistent is like the opposite of lactose intolerant. I'm just trying to normalize one over the other. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Lactase persistence means you persist in making lactase, which is the enzyme that breaks down lactose. Okay. Um, that's a that's a, a a weird position for an adult mammal to be in is to break yeah. down lactose. Well, I can't. So yeah. I'm exactly. Not in that exactly. At all. So what um, what makes it to where like adults are lactase persistent then and aren't necessarily lactose intolerant? I 
love this. This is you, tangents and tangents. Yeah. Tangents <laughs> upon Welcome, tangents. Everyone. But yeah. I, yeah. I love this because this is one of the things I learned as an undergraduate in biological anthropology that I took forward. In my, it, it, it actually taught me something about myself I didn't know. Hmm. Um, there is an allele, um, actually multiple different alleles, um, that, that regulate when that persistence gets shut off. If you have a mutation at that allele... Um, certain mutant mutations um, don't shut that off, so you just persist in making it. Mm-hmm. And there are certain regions in the world where that mutation has arisen and has been selected for by natural selection. Mm-hmm. One of them is Northern Europe. One of them is West Africa. One of them is India. I believe there's also a spot in the Middle East, East Africa as well. It's mm-hmm. pastoralist, right? It has been associated with pastoralism, yeah, but this. not all of them necessarily. Okay. But yeah, they, it yeah. co-evolves with pastoralism. You're right because they want to drink the milk. Right. right. Yeah. Okay. So you can develop. You can, I guess, just all of a sudden be lactose intolerant, then, right? Y- well, yes, and most right. of the world doesn't tolerate digesting lactose as an adult, That's or whenever it switches off during their childhood period. It's really because when I was an undergrad, I had a roommate. He went to go study abroad in China for like eight months, and I don't really drink milk there, right? So right. like after that time, he came back, and then all of a sudden, just couldn't digest <laughs> yep. milk. Yep. So, how sad for him! How it, sad. it was because he loved milk. He, he loved drank milk. it all the Ooh. time. Well, he, well, so he, can, <laughs> he can drink lactase. Same thing. Yeah. Well, he uh, <laughs> he took like the the pills that help you. Yeah. Yeah, do yeah, that, yeah, yeah. And then like I think eventually he got to where like he could break right. it down again but well, it's just I th- so bizarre. I think there's another piece to that too yeah. that is um I, I think your gut microbiome will also help oh, if you okay. have microbes in there that can digest lactose sure. for you gotcha. um okay. that might that might help at least in a way that doesn't make you feel really sick Great. um so he may have acquired those microbes back well hmm. they would have still been in there but they may have hmm. sort of regrown with the lactose okay hmm. so i think that it's it's a characteristic that there is at least some ebb and flow to it hmm. Okay. I think that might be a good place to, to take a break. And then when we come back, we can talk about your second project that actually you worked with the microbiome? Yes. Right? Okay. So that's it's a good perfect segue. segue. <laughs> there we go. All right. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Anthro Alert here on Bulls Radio. Uh, so far this hour, our guest, Dr. Elizabeth Miller, has been telling us about the work of her research, looking at infant feeding here in, um, in, in an adjacent hospital. Um, mm. Infant feeding and breastfeeding and trying to ask questions pertaining to that. And all that is very, very exciting, especially for me because I worked in such a field for a little bit. Um, uh, but I think we actually need to kind of transition a little bit to a different, a slightly different topic. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Spencer kind of gave me the hint yes. right <laughs> right before the break. But we're going to we're gonna talk a little bit more about the um, – I like cliffhangers. <laughs> but, yeah, leave them in anticipation <laughs> so they'll come back. I, I like cliff notes. No, no, no. no. Uh, I, I actually, but I prefer really cliff bars. Oh yeah, those are pretty oh, good no. too. Oh, those are okay. I, <laughs> I, I, I like Laura Bar better. Anyway, um, yeah. So let's talk about the gut biome a little bit and. Okay. Um, Specifically in very low-weight babies. Yes, yes. So that's another um, project I'm working on with collaborators from USF Health. Um, in this case, the PI of the project is um, another colleague from the College of Nursing, um, Dr. Maureen Grohr. Um, she, as, with, as a leader and myself as a, one of the co-investigators, um, you know, attained a, quite a large grant um, to mm-hmm. study these um, very low birth weight babies um, so just a, just a second. What what constitutes uh, very low birth weight? Oh no. Okay, now you're asking me that. So, um, your typical birth weight, your average birth weight um, for a term baby, normal size is 
I believe it's 3,400 grams. Okay. So, so in pounds, we're like five and a half pounds to around eight and a half pounds. Yeah, yes. roughly. Yes. Five and okay. a half would be the cutoff for low birth weight. Yeah. Um, and I don't know exactly what that number is. Very low birth weight is 1,500 grams or less. Hmm. And I saw some numbers in my database that were around 500. It's extremely wow. small. I think that that's can maybe a even, pound and a half. Can you even survive that? Is that These babies survived it. Wow. Yeah. Okay. They, they were really, at the really very small. edge, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah medical technology is pretty good to around 20, 21, 22 weeks. It's like the, it's very, it's very early. I yeah. think um, 24 maybe. Oh, 24. Okay. I think, mm. I think that these infants were 24 and like 23 to 24, I think is where, uh-huh. where it is at. Mm. Mm. And I wouldn't say very good. I would say yeah. adequate. It's possible. possible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow. That was yeah. very, very small. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh. So we're dealing with a with a extremely fragile population mm. of babies here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, most are preterm. Um, occasionally, one might be kind of close to term and what we would call small for gestational age. But um, so these are these are infants that um, go into the neonatal intensive care you which unit, which we would call NICU. Um, and they stay there for a decent amount of time before they're discharged. Um, and that length varies. On average in the study, it was um, at least five to six weeks, I believe. Um, but some were there for a couple of months. Um, and I've heard stories of longer. I don't think any baby in this study were there longer. But um, some infants end up there for a long time. So one of the things that we were interested in, well, so so we can get back to some of the, the clinical work first, is that the study originally started because they were interested in feeding um, it, what these babies were fed. Um, they, they frequently suffer from um, a, a extremely deadly condition known as necrotizing enterocolitis, which is when pieces of the intestine just die. Mm-hmm. And um, that can be fatal, um, and it's extremely serious. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things that is protective against that is, um, is being fed human milk over formula. Um, so one of the things, the clinical changes that has uh, been over, that has been um, undertaken in this particular NICU is that they try to give either donor human milk or mother's own milk to these infants wherever possible mm-hmm. uh, and stay away from formula um, as part of a quality improvement. I, I believe since they've done that, no, I, I, maybe I'm misquoting, I'm not exactly sure, no baby has died of, of, of neck necrotizing enterocolitis. Um, so one of the, the original pieces of the study was studying that, giving okay. milk giving milk to these babies and then seeing what happens. But um, we decided, well, let's look at the other end, right? So if we know that they're at risk for neck, we don't really know how neck comes about. Um, why don't we look at the microbiome of these babies mm-hmm. and see what happens? So stool samples were also collected and we're also following them up at ages three and five Mm. um, to look at the microbiome and it turns out the microbiome of these preterm very low birth weight infants are considerably different than others um, than full-term babies um, whether breastfed or formula fed Um, they're dominated by um, proteobacteria which are very inflammatory bacteria whereas full-term babies um, have a lot of like lactobacillus um, things that reduce reduce intestinal inflammation. So mm-hmm. they just have an entirely different thing going on there. And we're hoping, we're hoping to connect what the composition is in there to a lot of different outcomes. Um, things like, um, cognitive outcomes. Um, and it, it on, on my case, I, I was brought in because I'm an expert on baby growth. Mm-hmm. So infant growth outcomes. So, so just to jump in real there, um, and just, um, look at maybe a preview for, for our next conversation on neuro, neuro, 
biology and neuroanthropology is um, uh, w- one of the things that I saw, and, and I didn't follow up on it to investigate it, but um, again, looking at the uh, connections or correlations to gut microbiome and cognitive um, mm-hmm. cognitive health mm-hmm. is that's fascinating to me. Mm. So. Yes. So I, I, I think maybe we should like take a step back and maybe ex- <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> maybe we should explain what the microbiome is and what for people that don't know. Sure, like, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, um, we have lots of microbiomes. So one of the the newest figures out is that maybe forty percent of the cells in your body actually are genetically you. And the rest are um, belong to various other microbial creatures, um, usually bacteria. But you've probably got a virome and a maybe a, a oh, what else might there be? Uh, well, I don't remember. But you've got other ohms in there. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but the microbiome we te- we typically talk about is is bacterial, and it turns out bacteria live on pretty much any surface they can possibly get in in your body, um, your skin. Um, your mucosal surfaces, which is your your mouth, your gastrointestinal tract, um, your lungs, um, urogenital tract, um, pretty mm. much anything um, has a microbiome. And in fact, there's a milk microbiome, which I'm also studying, but that's a side. I won't talk about it here, but mm. I've got that going too. Um, so there's a microbiome to pretty much anything that you, <laughs> you might want to study on the body. Um, and most of the research has been focused around the gastrointestinal microbiome, specifically um, the lower intestine, because that's there's a lot there's a lot in there. Well, mm-hmm. that's like the trendy one, too. Yes. Well, yes. That's what I was going to say mm-hmm. is this kind of blew up, I guess, is like within the past decade. Right. Like mm-hmm. everybody's like the microbiome. It's yep. like the new sort of buzzword kind of. So why yes. is this such an interesting topic or why is it such an important topic to study now? <laughs> well. I have a, maybe a cynical answer to this, um, <laughs> is that the technology is there to do it. Oh. So there's, okay. um, we now have what we would call next generation sequencing. Um, previously, you had to, if you wanted to study the, uh, a DNA sequence, you had to go base pair by base pair. Mm. And yeah, there were some technologies that sped that up, but it was still a relatively slow and expensive process. Mm. Um, now, with next generation sequencing, you're able to sequence it relatively quickly, and you can sequence a lot of it. So... Mm. Um, microbiomes are now more accessible. Um, and now we have a ton of data that we're still, I think, dealing with um, um, from a bioinformatic perspective, which mm-hmm, is a whole sure. other issue I probably shouldn't talk about on Anthro Alert. Mm. <laughs> but we're dealing with now some big data. But it, it, partly it's because it's accessible. I, I want to try and connect two dots. Um, so r- just just now, Dr. Miller, you me- you mentioned or you, you threw out the phrase um, like skin microbiome. Yes. And then earlier in, in one of our um, – earlier in the conversation, we were talking about like um, cl- clinical aspects to supporting breastfeeding. Mm. And so one of the things that you, you mentioned was um, helping moms with like skin to skin. And so that – that process of skin to skin, I'm sure, has some effect on helping the baby populate their own microbiome Absolutely. on the skin. Mm. Absolutely. Wow, look at you. Yeah, yeah. you're mm. right. You're right. Mm. And you know, that one hasn't been studied so much. People talk about um, childbirth as being a locus for how the infants populate their microbiome. So is it is it vaginal versus C-section? Mm-hmm. I mean, we do see that there are differences between those two modes of birth, but mm-hmm. I bet that the skin-to-skin contact also plays some role as mm. well. Um, certainly, if you're talking milk, there's there's a microbiome in milk, but there's also a microbiome of the nipple. And actually, a lot of the the bacteria that colonize the infant are skin micro, microbes mm. because of at least if they're breastfed, that mode of feeding. Mm. 
So if there are any as aspiring um, PhD students here in, in the interest of biological anthropology, you, you have a potential dissertation topic. Yes. Renee just gave you a topic. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Just, just throw, throw, throw me an acknowledgement and we'll be, we'll be good. Please come with uh, quantitative and programming skills. Thank you. Because <laughs> there's a lot of data. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, uh, I think we're going to take one more break, and then when we come back, we will um, actually have to wrap up this hour of the show, so stay oh, tuned. All right. Welcome back to uh, Bulls Radio. This is Anthro Alert. Welcome back. Um, that's, uh, that's a great song, everybody. We're all all-stars here. Um, if you listen to us live, you, you know what song that was. If this is the podcast, just use your imagination. <laughs> Um, but we we're having a conversation about uh, gut microbiome and infant health and infant feeding and um, applying anthropology to improve outcomes for uh, women. Um, and, and uh, yeah, it's actually a great conversation. This stuff is very interesting to me just because I had prof professional past experience in it. And mm. um, it's always interesting to hear how anthropology is applied to some of that stuff. And that's actually maybe some of the questions we're going to ask now is, is what are – what are other opportunities to apply anthropology in this realm mm. or oops sorry or other um, <laughs> other aspects of that question okay yeah, I think that that's a, a great question. Um, I have sort of grown as an applied anthropologist since I've been here at USF myself. I was trained in a very theoretical department, and um, you know part of my development as a faculty member has be me becoming more applied and one of the things that I think um, is is really becoming a bigger part of biological anthropology is this applied perspective as well. Maybe it's only because my perspective has changed and they haven't, but um, I think so. I really think that um, there could be a great biological anthropology of the hospital. Hmm. And um, biological anthropology has often you know, talked about human universals or variation, um, but it may be useful or interesting in some way to you know, sort of connect a clinical population to um, some of the theories that are in biological anthropology as well. Um, so I think that that's a, an interesting area where um, medical anthropologists have been doing it for a long time, doing mm -hmm. anthropology in clinical settings. But I think biological anthropologists, we can potentially move in there too and do more work um, as applied anthropologists. Um, certainly with mothers and babies, it's, it's, it's delicate work, you know, so it's not necessarily a, a free-for-all sort of thing I wouldn't necessarily recommend every student run in there and start studying very low birth weight babies but mm -hmm. um, I think there are questions that could be answered that would be um, very a very good place for students to, to start their work so what what advice would you have for a student trying to take on this type of work either at the master's or the PhD level Wow hmm well, this type of work specifically, especially if you're talking microbiome, mm. um, unfortunately, you're going to have to either come in knowing a decent amount of quantitative and programming mm -hmm. or be very open to learning it by yourself. Um, that is where some of my projects have sort of struggled is that my learning curve to get myself to learn the programming to do this, things like learning Python, learning R. Mm. Um, it's just taking me a while. I actually really enjoy doing it, but it's just taking me a long time to do it because I have other things to do as a faculty member. Right. Um, so, so knowing that you're going to have to engage with that stuff um, is important because a lot of anthropology students don't want to do that stuff. And, and just to clarify for, <laughs> for our listeners, R is a data science for pirates. Yes. 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 <laughs> Yes, and Python is a programming language that is used frequently by um, biologists. Mm. Oh, really? So, yes. I mean, okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. 
So, um, mm. so those are, are surprising skills. A lot of anthropology students don't think that those skills could be useful in anthropology, but they can be. Mm-hmm. I use Python yeah. for my Twitter bots. I love that. Mm. See, applied applied Python. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right there. I recently started teaching myself how to code a little bit, just to like at least know, like when if somebody's like talking about it in a conversation, I like at least know what's happening. Yes, kind of thing. Um, you know, I hope to learn more, but I just don't really have the need right now. So. Yes. Well, and you know, I have to say, I am. I like big picture, so mm-hmm. I get the big picture programming. I get what needs to be achieved, right. but I hate breaking it down in every single little step. Yeah. I don't like that part. So Python, I'm less interested in. R, I'm more interested in because I like statistics. 100%. Mm-hmm. I agree. <laughs> and, it, and it's also having that uh, purpose. I've tried yes. to, I try to teach myself Python several times yes. using, using like a universal, but since it's not applied to anything I'm right. doing, it's like pulling teeth. But right. as soon as yeah, it's like right. an R thing, I need to know. Yep. My I'm data... My data are there, and I need right. to use R right. to analyze it. That's yeah. where I'm at right now. Yeah. So. Um, what, what are some resources that you're using to help with your self-study of R or Python? I have been – some of it is I will go look up the problem that I need to solve. Hmm. Um, some of it is, well, if, if I'm using the package and they are detailed enough, I'm able to do it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the, the, the um, packages that I would use to convert sort of the raw sequence files to things like a sequence table and a taxonomy table, so it would assign it a se- it would assign a sequence something like um, lactobacillus, mm-hmm. so it would assign it to a taxonomy. Um, the person who wrote that, Data2, um, has a wonderful step-by-step guide. Hmm. Um, PhiloSeq, what I would use to analyze that taxonomy table, is a little bit more open-ended, so I have to, I think, do a little bit more work there to like understand the principles of it, because I hmm. can't follow quite the same step-by-step. I have to know what question I'm testing first <laughs> before yeah. I really go there. Um, so, so a lot of it is things that the, the creators of these packages put out. In terms of learning R overall, um, I actually have been taking Coursera. Okay. I've been using that mm. to try to teach myself R from a more, you know. Like a holistic. Holistic way, yeah, orienting myself to the entire um, environment. Um, yeah. So, okay, so it sounds like there's a couple of aspects there that people need to be familiar with in, in order to kind of um, apply anthropology or, or in this type of biological anthropology yes. setting is, is, one, kind of understanding, like, the biology part of it. Yes. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> like, like just, yes. Just, just knowing that. Yes. And then, two, being able to understand the statistical um not not only just the procedures but like but why some procedures will be chosen over others right Mm -hmm. yes absolutely Um, and you know i i'm getting this from somewhere else but to do this type of work you have to be a biology you have to understand biology you have to understand statistics and you have to understand programming um and i can do two out of three and i'm struggling with the third right so (laughs) um i could do biology and statistics and then the the programming is still where i'm where i'm needing needing work um but as long as you're sort of aware of where you need to work right so you really have to like diversify your education for this type of research yes it sounds like yes uh dr miller how did you i mean how did you settle into anthropology and and into this this specific type of anthropology that's a good question that is a good question um i was exposed to specifically human biology which i would consider myself a biological anthropologist whose sub sub discipline is human biology um, my undergraduate program has, has an extremely strong program in human biology specifically. Um, it was at Northwestern University, and mm-hmm. um, the, the faculty members were there. They were very strong, and the undergrad curriculum was set up so that I took, f- you know, my four field classes, 
I took a general methods class. I took a subfield specific methods class. I took upper level classes in the theories in human biology. So by the time I went to grad school, which had a lot less in human biology, but a lot more in just biological anthropology, um, I felt really, really very comfortable operating in that world. And mm. uh, the more I've gone on, the more I'm very grateful I landed in that sub-sub-discipline rather than something else. Really glad I'm not a paleoanthropologist, <laughs> I have to say. But, yeah. Really but, glad. But you, you could have, you know, you could have done in-depth analysis of, like, the, the ankle. And, and <laughs> exactly. The, the development exactly. of the human exactly. ankle. Exactly. Right. And a buddy Good. of mine certainly did yeah. that. Very famous guy now. <laughs> but I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be happy with that, the yeah. ankle person. Yeah, and, and that's probably like the good thing about anthropology is that it's such a just a huge field that I mean, you're you're most most people are able to find something that um, satisfies their intellectual curiosity and their mm-hmm. yes. and their sense of purpose in, in such Absolutely. a way that, that really right. is really helpful. because it doesn't all have to be like critical complaining about everything. No, it doesn't. Right. Yeah. It doesn't. Right. That's, I mean, <laughs> that is fun though. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. That's it's one of the perks, but you shouldn't all do that. I would say only like one of the only issues is that you kind of like we do have to seek out a lot of like extra Mm -hmm. training and kind of like on our own accord because programs don't necessarily present that opportunity for us. So, yes, I feel like I I, that's my critical complaining. I'm a a (laughs) renaissance person in some ways. I know a little bit about a lot of different things, but it's harder to delve deeply into one. Mm -hmm. It's harder to know where exactly my really deep knowledge is in some Mm -hmm. places. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that would be like my complaint for for this program is that I, I almost found it to be like not applied enough, like very very theoretical, and I had to yeah. kind mm-hmm. of figure out how to apply things on my own. Yep. Yeah, but you wonder to, then to if, some success if departments <laughs> though in order because it's such a naked discipline that has to attach itself to something else. That's true. So you'd need almost a department that only does biological yeah. anthropology specifically and and coordinates with other departments throughout the grad school about you know what I mean. Yeah. They've yeah. they've tried that. Well, departments have split. But that's a whole other conversation, okay. I suppose, that we yeah. probably don't have time well, for. Like if the school had a feature, like if it looked at public yeah. health and that, it would have to pretty much only do that. I think since mm-hmm. this is all applied anthropology, it's hard to find. You'd have to have such a big faculty to specialize deeply in right. so many things. Right. Yeah. And I think that there's a tension there, too, because I, I, I find it difficult to think about anthropology without theory, period. Um, and if there's no no theory, are you... Uh, to me, I'm I, I, I con- I'm concerned. Is that anthropology anymore? Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. trying to strike that balance, um, and I, I I understand the struggle, and in part I think that's a struggle we actually all have to go through. Mm-hmm. In yeah. a sense, I struggle with it too. How applied should I be? How theoretical should I, I love theory? But um, how 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 much you know how much should I bring into the applied side? You know, it's mm-hmm. constantly trying to figure out that balance. Theory befuddles me. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I like it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. um, I think we could just keep going down that rabbit hole, but unfortunately we have to to wrap up the show for this hour. Um, But stay tuned because we will have a second hour. Um, But thank you, Dr. Miller, for coming on. Thank you for having me. Volunteering your time to come and hear us rabble and talk on our show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I, I think it was a good show today. I thought it was. We got to take... Just a very different perspective. I, I just usually our conversations haven't talked about um, aspects like this that in that much, much detail. So right. Oh, great. We've had a lot of archaeology, yeah. had a lot of cultural anthropology, not a lot of biological. Oh, anthropology, great! So. Fantastic. I yeah. could probably do another hour. Have more well, to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'd love to have you back on the show. So, um, thank you again, and and um, we're gonna take about a ten to fifteen minute break, and we will be back on for our second hour. 
So stay tuned.